Welcome to episode 21 of the Zach Kuhn Show. Here we go. Today's guest is John Esposito, the chairman and CEO of Warner Music Nashville. Now, I'm talking with John this week, and I'm thinking about this quote from one of my favorite music industry books, Cowboys and Indies by Gareth Murphy. And the quote on the very first page of the book is, in a game largely populated by bullshitters, being a real record man means getting lucky more than just once or twice. It means picking the winning ticket lots of times. And that is what Espo has done. He takes over the label over a decade ago, and he describes Warner at the time as witness protection because it's where artists went if they never wanted to be seen again. Fast forward a decade, and he has signed some of the biggest acts in country music, acts like Brett Eldridge, Dan and Shay, Chris Jansen, Ingrid Andrus, the, the list is insane, Kenny Chesney, Gabby Barrett, I mean, it, it goes on and on. And th- this is this is an incredible episode. I can't wait for you guys to listen. I was so excited to post this. I'm, I'm going to stop talking. Let's dive in. I was watching this video last night of you playing guitar on the Warner patio with a couple of Warner artists, and you were playing a Tom Petty song, uh, Won't Back Down. How, how often do you get to sit in with the artists? Is that, is that something that you, you look forward to, sitting in with the artists? You know, I... I... I came down here uh, 11 years ago this month, right? So um, that's that's a milestone in itself, and vowed that I would not play out for a long, long time because I didn't want anybody to think I was in anything but business about running the record label. But I have guitars all through my office, and artists would come in, and you know they would often say, "Hey, can you play that thing?" And then I'd play, and they go, "Oh." You actually do know how to play and sing. And so we'd jam, we'd have so many fun jam sessions in my office. You know, and it's funny, imagine me sitting there playing and singing with uh, Charlie Warsham on guitar and Shay Mooney on vocal and Dan uh, Smyers <laughs> on guitar. And I'm thinking, well, how fucking lucky am I? Am I allowed to say the F-bomb here you, on the- You can say anything you want, absolutely. On, on that. <laughs> Um, but if I remember right, the thing you're referring to with literally an hour's notice, uh, we had uh, Frankie Ballard, Hunter Hayes, and I don't remember, it could have been Charlie Worsham. There, there were a number of our artists who were doing this thing, and Frankie came up and said, okay, you know how to play, uh, you won't, I won't back down, don't you? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you're playing it today when we play. And I said, yeah, sure. And no rehearsal just went down there and did it boy was that fun that was that was fun i try you know i don't want anybody to think that i've ever coerced anybody i like being asked but i don't need to be asked that often but it is really if you know how to play i always say this to people who can play an instrument you know they tend to learn it when they're a kid they tend to stop playing when they think they become adults and I always say the same thing. Keep playing for the rest of your life. The fulfillment from playing on the back deck is astonishing. Um, it's really bad when you end up being in your 40s and 50s and you haven't picked up whatever instrument you can play for decades. And you see somebody play and you go, oh, I wish I'd kept with it. And I will never have to say that because, it, you know, music courses through my veins it courses through most people's veins um in one way or another but if you can play just keep playing playing and playing you know 
Absolutely. Do you, are you a collector also? Do you collect guitars? No, I have a, I have what would appear to be a collection, um, but it's not because I'm trying to be a collector. I've bought a bunch at charity auctions. You know, I have this um, stunning uh, Gibson SG, 1968 Gibson SG signed wow. by Carlos Santana that he played at Woodstock, you know, and it Wait. actually hangs on my wall at my office and I let people play it. You know, it's not, I don't buy it so I can sit there and stare at it and not let anybody play it. You know, I have a Cheryl Crow signed guitar from a charity auction and uh, on and on. Um, but I really, when it comes down to it, I probably have 30 guitars. I probably play the same three all the time because they're my babies. They're the ones that uh, they just feel right, you know, to me. Uh, wait, hold on one second. You have, is that the SG that he's playing on Soul Sacrifice in the movie? Is it that SG that you have? No, he played at Woodstock in 1969. Using well, in, in, I have, in the thing... In the famous Woodstock performance, he's playing Soul Sacrifice in oh, the movie okay. on a red yeah. SG. Is that yes. the SG? Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> yep. And it's just hanging there in my office, and I point at anybody who's really good. I'm a rhythm guitarist, so that guitar is built for people who know how to play lead guitar. And I say, hey, you want to play an electric guitar? There's probably a Telecaster, the SG. There's this gorgeous guild uh, hollow body in there. I say play that one because it it plays so well, you know, pretty fantastic. That is unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. So a, a new Warner song just came out a couple of weeks ago. I should probably go to bed. Dan Shea. I was freaking out about. I thought it was it was such a cool hip song. The production, the whole thing, very funky. And I'm curious, when does that? At what point in the process does that song come across your desk? and they say, we're gonna release this. When, when do you hear that song, I should probably go to bed? Well, I, you know, well, the funny thing as an overarching point um, is it's funny when I hear a song and it's months and months in advance being released. And by the time we release it, I think everybody knows this song. And then I have to remember almost every time. No, no, there are only about 10 of us who have heard it a hundred times, right? Or a thousand times or whatever. It, in that uh, very specific case, um, and I don't think um, Dan and Shay would be mad if I, I, I told this behind the scenes, we had a different single picked and it's gonna be a Smasheroo number one record, I promise you. And you know what we always refer to as a high class problem is, and then I got a text from, in this case, Dan saying, you have to hear this song. And I said, excellent. You're going to send it to me? He goes, no, I need to come over to your house and play it. Now, in the COVID uh, lockdown, this was the first time I interacted with an, anybody, really, other than my wife and eight-year-old, um, face-to-face uh, in, in months. I can't remember the exact date, but you know, our remote working started something like the 12th or 13th of March. And this probably was two months into it. And Dan had not interacted with anybody. Um, he and Shay, you know, were really doing the social distancing in the studio and Dan would tinker with a lot of the stuff as the producer. And I, th I thought, well, okay, you know, I love that I'm gonna get to hear this song in person on a good stereo. You know, I have a decent stereo at the house. Um, 
Um, um, and I, I love that Dan is going to be there to play it for me, but I'm always like anxious with an, when an artist wants to play a song for me in person, because what if I thought it didn't beat the one, you know, and I do everything for my body language to be as neutral and zero as possible. Right. Um, that's just, you gotta do that. You can flip your elbow, raise your eyebrow and Oh, he didn't like it. You know, uh, by the way, all artists, this is not specific to any artist. This is all artists. And I was just stunned when that uh, big comes towards the end of it. And, you know, the, um, the, the drum, drums enter and crash in. I was like, wow, this song is just magic. And after one listen, I couldn't help uh, this. Actually, this is quite true. My, my eight-year-old um, uh, was in the next room. And after one listen, every time, I should probably go to bed. Uh, I hear her doing this from the back after the song's done, you know, uh, uh, from the kitchen. And I thought, well, that's the kind of song you want, a song where the hook first time. Anyhow, I said to Dan, well, you got your queen moment in your career right there. And he goes, thank you for understanding that reference. Oh, my God. You know, I mean, that's the Beatles. It's queen. It's uh, everything. And it's so classic Dan and Shay, those chord changes and everything. Wait till you see the live version. They cut it Ocean Way. I don't know when we're releasing it, but it's just Dan on piano and Shay singing. And it, it will take everyone's breath away. I think we're releasing it in the early September or something like that. Holy cow. And an eight-year-old is the perfect litmus test to have around, right? She she knows music. If it, if it connects with her, it's a good sign. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it, it, absolutely. And um, Isabella uh, um, has, you know, the proclivity to take my iPhone, my wife's iPhone, an iPad, and go on to a streaming service and be a DJ. She just walks around the house doing it. I have heard I should probably go to bed without exaggeration um, 1,500 times since it officially got released to streaming. It's like, oh, there it goes again. Bella, come on. Um, she, she did that with Gabby Barrett's uh, um, uh, mashup with Charlie Puth version of- Yep, um, um, I, I hope. hope. And uh, it was, it, I was glad that she graduated to another song because I love these songs, but you know, 80 times in the morning while you're having coffee can be a little bit like, let's, let's expand the, uh, the universe, Bella. Uh, but I love it. I love it. Absolutely. So at what point when you're working with a new artist, at what point does it come across your desk? Are there people that are, you know, vouching them and then by the time it gets to you, are you pretty close to signing or, or what does it take for an artist to actually sit down with you or for your, for you to actually consider them? on a serious level, at what point is that? You mean to sign the artist? To, to sign them, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank God for my A&R team. I, I have actually, uh, I should probably update the statistic, but about five years ago, I was curious myself. And uh, in round numbers, they get hit up between managers, lawyers, uh, publishers, uh, whoever has the ability to send a song in. Anybody has the ability, you know, it could, it could come from, you know, they're paying attention to, there's a blip and holy crap, JR is playing this over at SiriusXM and look at this, whatever it comes to, 2,500-ish 
submissions per year. They roughly end up getting 250 to 300 in their offices without me knowing. I mean, sometimes it's urgent, um, you know, uh, there, there's it, it's so much activity so quickly that, that we dive in quickly, quickly. Um, um, but um, roughly 250 to 300 in their office, and then they schedule time in my office, which now we're doing via Zoom, um, um, about 50 a year, and we probably end up signing two or three a year. So how about that filtration system, you know? And, and this, you know, COVID era signing on Zoom, we have signed uh, one, two, three, uh, three artists and took serious looks via Zoom at about five or six others. So we haven't slowed down because they're not coming into my office and playing live. It is, you know, a little more challenging, obviously, because I like to judge their personalities and their star power as much as I want to help be a judge of their, their talent. And that's kind of hard when all they can see is. I was going to ask. You <laughs> as you see of me right now and vice versa. And, um, you know, so uh, it, but it's, it's, we're over that hurdle. You know, we're proud of these artists that we've signed and that we're, we're about to launch. And, uh, you know, so it hasn't slowed us down. It just took some getting used to. I think the very first meeting, uh, 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 everybody was probably trying to figure out what format to use. We used a Google Hangout. And, you know, at this point, I'm, Google Hangout, Zoom, Microsoft Teams, um, I feel like, well, those are what we've ended up using. Um, um, but I'm now on Zoom, I'm on video meetings on GoToMeeting, and I feel like there was some other one. It's, it's thank God there are links and calendars. I can just click the link. Oh, and there I am talking to Ian Munsick, the first artist we signed um, on uh, the the video chat version of it. Uh, is it like another test if an artist is on Zoom and, and from Zoom, if you're able to feel, holy cow, they have such star power over Zoom, imagine what it would be in person. Does it almost provide another level of a test for them to see if they, you know, they make you feel something personality-wise? Um, uh, I, I think that's a fair assessment. You know, uh, it, it has to be more challenging for them too. Yeah. You know, uh, we're, time will tell, you know, cause I, I feel like we're probably going to be locked down in this space for, you know, a good number of months ahead of us. And so, you know, the, the, the sort of proof in the pudding, uh, that you're asking about will end up being as much when we start launching them, you know, we had, you know, at any given point, I'm proud of our label um, for statistically having signed fewer artists and dropped fewer artists in the past um, decade than our competitors, because we're pretty tenacious people and we're pretty discerning and the uh, country clubs getting harder to get into, you know, because we keep signing artists that set new bars and then it's like, well, this, this person doesn't beat that person, no matter how good they are. We might've signed them when I was trying to rebuild the label 10 years ago um, and no shot at them. They're talented, but Holy crap, we've got somebody who does that sort of lane so much better than them. Right. But at the end of the day, we always have, and I have to, I have to move inside here. 
we're doing Please. an audio only, right? Because yes, yeah, yeah. It has started to rain here on the island of Nantucket. Let me move in here. Your listeners can hear the uh, um, joy of we'll the We'll fix shop. it in post. <laughs> right. Um, but anyhow, at any given point, we probably have about six artists in the development stage. Um, and, you know, we're in the old days, pre-COVID, ready to launch them to um, uh, radio tour and, and all the other stuff we do face with the streaming services and the press and all that. In today's world, we are finding the virtual ways we're having to do that. And um, I think we're, you know, we're finding, I, I think statistically, we are more aggressive in our going after new artists and not waiting for the so-called when things get back to normal um, um, days. Um, we've released more radios singles in these months than any competitor. We've released more full-length records than any competitor. But now we're going to get the, how, how is the artist development uh, working, you know, uh, in a world where they're not able to do face-to-face? Because -face? it's, you know, you can launch a Brett Eldridge album, a Blake Shelton single, a, you know, Kenny Chesney record. They already know who they are. But take the unknown artist and take them out uh, um, in the world and try to get traction. You know, it's learning new dance steps for us. I, I'd say that, you know, um, who, who might have, well, we're getting traction with Shy Carter. You know, he's a brand new artist of ours. And TikTok happens to have embraced him, the audience, and we're getting traction. And, you know, we have to do these things to see signs that we're getting traction before we're going to do the big plunger that is known as terrestrial radio. And it's, you know, simply the big plunger because when you have everything else happening, you're getting streams, you're getting YouTube views, you're getting TikTok, you're getting social media, you know, adoption. Um, then it becomes a lot easier to go to the terrestrial radio and push them so that when you get into the top 20, you've got, uh, you know, 15 plus million people listening to it. And that generally is when you have the big bubble and everything comes together, right? But you, you know, in this, in this space that we're in, you've got to keep seeing signs that tell you, okay, we did pick the right single and it is time to go to terrestrial radio. And we're now starting to have that unfold this fall. So it's going to be um, um, interesting to watch how it, how it unveils itself. I'm very confident that we won't do anything that will uh, do anything but advance the career of these these artists that are in development. Absolutely. I so about ten questions right there, by the way. So you know, no, that was that was fantastic. So when you like a couple of weeks ago, an completely independent country artist had the number one song on iTunes chart thanks to TikTok. When you see those kinds of things happening. Do you try to chase those artists? Do you try to double down on what you're doing with your artists? Like, how, how does success like that sort of affect, you know, what you do with, with your artists? Does it have any effect? You know, there's no formula. Let's be quite clear. And we'd be stupid not to pay attention if an artist is getting some indication of real traction that comes from whatever it might be. TikTok, um, um, other things that tend to lead before terrestrial radio. In fact, most of the time an artist won't go to terrestrial radio if they're not already signed to a label. So yeah, we go dive in to see is there's something there. But I will tell you, um, 
for us historically, um, I don't know, eight out of 10 of them, it feels like a one, one trick pony, one hit wonder, don't feel like there's a depth there. But then there's the Gabby Barrett, who, you know, we were, we were looking at Gabby, we thought, boy, she can sing, holy crap. Um, and for 18 years old, when we were first looking at uh, her, she's developing as a writer what, at what a young age, but let's keep watching. And then I Hope got played on uh, uh, Sirius XM. And all of a sudden the streams were a million and a half a week. And you're happy if you got uh, a new artist doing that, that's signed and has already been, you know, you've done all the whoop de do you do to try to get them to get traction. Right. So it's like, whoa, now we better dive in. And of course, in her case, everybody else did too. And then it becomes this competitive battle. Um, and, uh, you know, then we have to do our best to prove to her why it would be smarter to be with us than somebody else. And they don't always um, um, pay off when you, when, you, when you do that competitive thing. Uh, but in Gabby's case, this is, this is a story that's creating one benchmark after another, you know. So, you know, we, we're very proud that we have uh, uh, had Ingrid and Gabby have back-to-back -back number one singles um, um, as females, let alone debut um, um, singles from females. Uh, you know, the stats are kind of wacky because charts have changed a bit, but our look said that it had been since 1992 since that had happened, right? And, you know, then people um, have asked me, especially people in the press, oh, um, did you plan that? And, yeah, I wish I was smart enough to be able to plan that, you know, we released these two singles uh, three months apart, but they happen to be one week after another. Now, I would just say yes. I just take credit for it. Why, why not? Right? We're 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 that smart. Yeah. But in Gabby's case, I mean, uh, she is two times platinum on I Hope, and her um, I Hope record um, um, has uh, the, the album that she has because of how many streams in this new world they measure uh, streaming track equivalent albums. So you add up how many albums have literally sold, um, how many tracks have sold, and they have divisions that get you to what the equivalent in the album would be, plus uh, how many streams you've got. And she's nearing 350,000 um, album equivalents off of her debut album only six weeks in. That's astonishing. People on a developing artist are celebrating if they get 50,000. And we're just starting to get you know, we're well into the chart now on single number two, um, uh, good ones. And, uh, you know, uh, I wish that when we chased the thing that was getting traction like that, it always worked that way. Um, um, it doesn't, but boy, when it does, you feel really happy that for some reason she picked us. Now, in her case, I might add, she's from Pittsburgh and I'm from Pittsburgh and that didn't hurt. Absolutely. So, so let's go back, actually. So you are from Pittsburgh. After college, you're playing in bands. You're managing a record store. A recruiter calls. You go work at Macy's. You go work at Mitsubishi. 
at what point do you jump back into the industry at that point? How, how do you get pulled back into the music industry? Well, I have a series of forks in the road that I'm very happy that the bets placed off, uh, uh, the bets I placed uh, paid off. Um, in the case of that story you just told and good research on your part, I was highly successful inside of Mitsubishi Consumer Electronics. I was in my uh, mid thirties and I was thinking, um, you know, I spend all of my disposable income on instruments. I have a several drum sets as well. Um, and uh, obviously the guitars we talked about earlier on CDs and concert tickets. This is a sign, you know, I mean, music has been the mainstay in my life since I was probably four years old. You know, it just, it was the one constant though. I never planned anything in terms of being in the music business, but there I was and I was making a conscious decision that if I, don't make a stab at getting into the music. I don't care how cushy this job is and how well it pays at Mitsubishi. I'm bored. I'm bored, seriously bored. I could get the job done, be done by three o'clock and you'd think somebody would say, well, that's cool. I'm gonna make the same amount of money. You get all that extra time. No, I need to be challenged. I am the class case of an Enneagram 7 um, and uh, the devil's uh, idle hands or the devil's workshop or whatever that expression is. And so I thought I better make the move now or I'll be in my forties and my resume will look like I'm a consumer electronics geek and I'm not um, able to be in the music business. So I called up my biggest retailer that I sold the product to and asked if they would introduce me to somebody in the music companies because they were a very large music retailer. They were, it was called Nobody Beats the Wiz in New York. Um, prettiest experience that was. Um, but they were like a Circuit City or a Best Buy, consumer electronics and appliances. And, and doesn't that make you think about the Dire Straits song? Um, um, Money for nothing. Maybe get a blister on your finger, maybe get a blister on your thumb. And I, um, I told him that it would be really appreciated. Well, they asked me to come to lunch, the brothers who owned the company, and they convinced me to come run their music division. So I thought myself, yeah, I, I hate retail. Sorry, I, I've done my retail stint. But if this is the way to get to meet people like me in the music business who are in jobs that, were, that somebody might say there's a diamond in the rough, I want to hire them, I'll take the job and see what happens. And within two years, I had Sony talking to me, EMI talking to me, and uh, God bless John Madison from Polygram talking to me. Although the John Madison story, and this is a fun and actually 100% true story, <laughs> I had interacted with him. He was uh, the number two at Polygram distribution at the time, but I had no idea he had interest in me. And one night at a NARM, as it was called, it's now the... Uh, music biz uh, conference, he said, hey, we should get together and have a glass of wine. And I said, okay, I'll call you when we get back to New York. He goes, no, right now. Okay, it's 11 o'clock at night. What kind of wine do you like? I said, hey, listen, you know, and I looked and got a great bottle of red wine. He and I went to the pool at the Biltmore Hotel in Phoenix, Arizona. I will never forget it for the rest of my life. I can probably remember the day. It was October for sure of uh, 2000. No, a 1994, 
And uh, we sit down, he goes, you're not gonna go work for Sony. And I said, well, I guess there are no secrets. He goes, there are no secrets in the business. He goes, I know who you're talking to. You're gonna go work for us. And I said, I'm gonna work for Polygram? He goes, yeah, well, what am I gonna do? I don't know. You don't even know how much money you make, I make. He goes, I don't care about that. Okay, John, you don't know how much you have to pay me and you don't know what I'm gonna do, but you want me to come work for Polygram? And he said, I swear to God, it took this long. It was less than two minutes. He goes, I need an executive like you on my team. I've identified you. Are you in or out? And I looked at him and he was so compelling. And it's not that I'm that wacky, but I shook his hand and said, I'm in. Well, I call, um, I call home the next morning to my now ex-wife. She probably is my ex-wife for a variety of reasons, including phone calls like this. And I said, well, I'm going to work for Polygram. When did you start talking to them? Oh, at 11 o'clock last night. Um, what are you going to do? I don't know. How much are they going to pay you? I said, look, I don't know, but I've never felt so wanted in my life. And, you know, I'm, I told him yes. And by God, there at the end of 94, I joined that, that company and uh, never looked back. One thing after another presented itself to me in the music business, the official music business. I was at a music major and I couldn't have been thrilled. And, what did you know, he... What did he see in you or while you were working at The Wiz on your know, running music at The Wiz? What had he experienced with or what do you think he saw in you that, that just made him so passionate about bringing you on? Well, I think that um, he'd be better equipped to answer this more thoroughly than me, but my um, um, guess, you know, obviously an educated guess because he told me some things through the, through the years is he saw in me a passionate music person, but a well-trained business executive with a lot of experience. You don't make it through the Macy system and fly through it to the senior position. I was there in four years, four and a half years, um, or, you know, these other things that I had done without um, having business chops. And he just wanted somebody who had executive thinking and business thinking, but who happened to know music um, even more profoundly than he did, because I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, in the old days they called it the phonologue. I certainly know a breadth of music that was, uh, that is pretty uh, wide and deep, and it's you know my passion. And he, he also saw in me at the Wiz that I was working in an environment that, to be kind, was insane, and I kept a level head and had my team delivering results, and that. If I could handle that kind of environment, bring me over there and, and, and give me a chance to help influence the environment that he was help, helping run at, at Polygram. So I listen, my star alignments that have happened in my life have been extraordinary. I'm 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 really fortunate, you know? Absolutely. So okay, so Polygram, there's consolidation, you end up working at Island Def Jam, you end up running WIA. When do you get the call to move down to Nashville? How, how does that conversation go? No, this is 100% um, true as well. I, I built WIA back into a force to be reckoned with back in the day when distribution companies um, were forces to be reckoned with themselves and WIA had, you know, fallen to the wayside quite a bit. And I, uh, I, I get bored um, relatively easily if I feel like that's as far as I could take it. 
I need more, you know? And so what was I seven years into it? I started in 2002 and uh, yeah, so I was um, seven years into it in the beginning of 2009. And I, I went to my, my boss, Lior Cohen, and I said, look, I don't know what more I can contribute. I've helped set up an international distribution company. I've helped get ADA integrated into this. I've got all this humming and I have done succession planning. I got these people running this thing, this show for me now that, you know, I'm, it, it might be a metaphor, but I'm, I'm getting bored around four or five in the afternoon. Like what else can I, I do? And I said, so you, you've got to promote me or fire me um, because there's no, you, you've got, I got it all set up for you. And he smiles and he says, that's great news. Would you do me a favor and go down the hallway and tell Edgar Brofman, who was the chairman of the company, what you just told me? And I, uh, I said, sure. I didn't think I was going to get fired, you know, because I was, you know. And this is the Lior Cohen, like Def, Def Jam. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lior was my official boss. He hates to use when I use the word boss, but basically from uh, um, what year did we start Island Def Jam? 1999 until I guess Lior left the company somewhere around 2012. So I, I came to, to Warner uh, about eight months before Lior left Island Def Jam and came over to Warner. So other than an eight month period, he was who I worked for for all of those years. And I learned a hell of a lot from him. I, I must say, I learned a hell of a lot from him. And uh, so I get down the hallway to Edgar, and I, Leo asked me to come down and tell you what I just told him. I tell him, and he smiles. He goes, all right, stay tuned. And a day or two later, um, uh, they, they, they say to me, okay, we'd like you to go down and, and fix the Nash Nashville operation. Would you be interested in moving down there to run the record label? And I said, oh, geez, I certainly would be, but I obviously have to ask Chantel, my wife. And they said, great. And on the train ride home to Greenwich, Connecticut, Chantel and I were living in Greenwich at the time, uh, commuting into Grand Central Station. I asked her, and she had been down to Nashville with me many times, and she goes, absolutely. You know, I'm up for the, the new adventure. And I was like, fantastic. So the next morning I went in, I told him, um, and it took them a couple of months to organize my deal the way I wanted it to be and to give me the sort of latitude and leeway. Cause I had to, I had to, uh, define how I wanted to run it. And if it failed, I'm the kind of person that's cool. I, I couldn't deliver, but I don't want any handcuffs and God bless them. They both, they both, you know, took, that's the way it works in the music business. It took a little, a bit of. Um, negotiation, uh, and I'm not really even just talking about the financial aspect. I'm talking about who I reported to, the authority I had, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then um, September 2nd, 2009, I started uh, running what became Warner Music Nashville. And boy, did we have a lot of stuff to fix. And, you know, I don't know what the questions you have, and, you know, we have about Five minutes. <laughs> Five minutes left, but one of the things I'm most proud of from this experience is 
I came into an artist roster that had been signed by the prior regime, um, and I had no preconceived notions about them because I didn't know enough about country uh, music to have a, a judgment that was worthwhile. But I thought this guy, Blake Shelton, who had been there eight years and, you know, he hits and a lot of misses. I just thought he was one of the greatest talents I had ever met and very important, engaging, charming, hilarious, witty qualities um, I had ever met. And I literally said, build the bill on Blake Shelton. We're going to prove to this town that we can get Blake Shelton um, to um, be deserving of being at the superstar. Um, and um, thank you. Um, you know, a number of people um, were thrilled that I put a stake in the ground and, you know, 17 number one records in a row were at that point, the record had been 11 number one records in a row on country radio. Um, Blake Shelton, you know, was established as a superstar. People think, you know, well, of course, all that was the voice, some people think. And it was like, well, that was two and a half years into this experience and probably five number one records under our belt. And God bless the voice has raised his profile because he is, as uh, Wes Voss, our uh, senior vice president of publicity, would say, um, the, these may not be the exact words, but it's all it's close enough. He's the single greatest ambassador for country music um, because he gets to play in front of... 12 to 13 million people a week and talk about country music. And, you know, listen, that's another bet I placed because I, you, you, you sit there and you say, well, I got 15 artists on the roster. Which one are you going to throw everything behind to prove that you can start getting momentum? And thank God it worked. But I mean, Blake's undeniable. And it's so fun to watch Blake now at this point in his career. He's still such a young man at uh, 44 years old. Um, but to watch that he's having um, smash after smash now the biggest records of his career with God's country and with uh, um, any um, whatever that first <laughs> song was with when happy anywhere which is flying through uh, the roof nope um, nobody but you yeah uh, I'm shit with song titles by the way um, but so I'm pretty good at the rest of their stuff <laughs> Absolutely. So you had said you were at WIA and you felt like, you know, I've, I've done, I have everything set up. I've done everything I can. You know, your channels are running smoothly. And I think it's pretty commonly understood that you came into Warner Nashville and turned everything around. Do you feel like it's in the place that it needs to be right now? Are you still trying to take it somewhere? I mean, you're having incredible success, but do you still wake up every morning and say, we've got to 10X this, we've got to, you know, we're, we, we can't stop now. <laughs> well, I, I will tell you that for the first time in my career, um, I have uh, zero boredom um, and only new mountains to climb. You, you, you have to know at this point uh, in the evolution of this label and in the career of John Esposito, the, the milestones that we've set just in 2020 in a more challenging time in 2020 only make me tell my senior team, this feels really good. I'd like to even feel better. You know, we're breaking females. We are um, extending um, Blake's career for, you know, 
perhaps decades. We're having massive success with Kenny Chesney where we are getting the first look at artist signings um, or, you, you know, the, we were the last one on the parade when they were looking to sign artists back in the day before I got here. We were known as the artist protection program. Um, you go to Warner if you want to never be seen again. So it feels so good. It, Dan and Shay's um, uh, 10,000 hours is on the verge of, of 2 billion worldwide streams. These things make me more excited to say, okay, now how do we beat that? Right? And so, no, I, I'm, I'm so far from done and so far from being satisfied that we, we've done it, um, you know, and reached some place where I can lay back. I'm having too damn much fun, buddy. Absolutely. Well, John, you were one of the first people I met in Nashville, which was an incredible way to kick it off. I was so appreciative then, and I'm so appreciative right now. Thank you so much for taking the time. And, and I, I'm, at some point, I want to come check out that Santana SG. <laughs> right on, man. It was wonderful talking to you, Zach. You take care, man. Absolutely. Talk soon. Be, be well. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in, and thanks again to John for taking the time to talk. Such a thrill, and I, I hope we get the chance to do it again soon. The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman, and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. If you want more content from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at NashvilleBriefing.com, or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Bye.